everyone. Merry Christmas and welcome. We as a church are taking time uh, during Advent season to focus on Jesus the man. And um, if you are new with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. I get to bring God's Word most Sundays, though we, we preach as a team together. And so this is the fourth in a series, and fourth and final message in a series for Advent on Jesus the Man. And you can be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 20 to 28 this morning. Um, I want to propose to you a new superhero. I want to propose a new superhero. We have all these superheroes with exceptional powers, right? Uh, that can all do amazing things. We got Superman. He's a human being, a human-like being from planet Krypton, right? And he can jump up into the sky. He can fly where he wants. He's got x-ray vision, super hearing, super speed and strength. He can do pretty much everything except remember that he's vulnerable to Krypton, right? That always gets him in trouble. Um, never understood that. But, but uh, then there's Batman. Batman's basically uh, a regular person. He doesn't have superpowers in and of himself, but he's, he's kind of a super ninja guy, right? I mean, he he's, has this ability to do things that ninjas do and all that. And he's got lots of money to buy all the gadgets and devices he needs to fight out other guys, um, even other superheroes. Then there's Spider-Man. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider. He has super strength and speed. Uh, he can climb walls, and he's got that spidey sense, right? He's got that extra sense. Uh, and he's a genius. So all these guys have these superpowers. I want to propose a, a new superhero without any superpowers. No access to great wealth. No genius. Nothing special. Just a, just a guy who's normal. A normal human being. He's a guy who's not a good athlete. Not above average in intelligence. Uh, not even extra strong. Not rich. Not even good looking. We're going to call this superhero... Normal man. Normal man. Do you think it will sell? Do you think it will work? Normal man? Uh, uh, there's more though. Hang in there. Hang in there. There's more to normal man. He is perfectly normal. He's perfectly normal. And, and what I mean that, that he does everything that a normal human being does, but, but, um, but he does it in a way that's perfect in his normality. So, growing up, He's very normal, growing up with a family. He has parents, and it's a normal situation. There's nothing spectacular about this guy, nothing unusual. But one thing is, is he actually does honor his parents growing up. He respects his parents. He loves his parents. He loves his siblings. He grows up and he learns to love others. He, he cares for his friends and neighbors. He goes to work. He works hard, supports his boss. Um, he, he lives his life for the good of others. And, and not only that, not only does he make like the right moral decision in all the normal parts of life, but, but he also speaks things that are true and good. Uh, there's just a wisdom about it, him. Even though he's normal, there's no great superior intelligence or superpowers, so to speak. Um, but he's able to just to bring truth and speak in people's lives that, that makes a difference. He says the right thing and he does the right thing. So that's normal man. And, and in my storyline for this new superhero, what happens is, is he starts to catch people's attention because of all this. 
He's just totally normal, but there's something about him in his normalness. He's perfectly normal. And in my storyline, he, he grabs eventually national fame because he's just so, in a sense, extraordinarily normal. And he starts to have influence and he becomes like a national figure, this normal man. That's, that's my storyline. Now, he's normal in every way except for two things. Two differences that, that you'll learn kind of as the storyline unfolds. You know, good story. You don't, you don't tell everything right away. But you learn eventually that actually there's something about him that's different. He's, he has origins that aren't really normal. He's actually, uh, uh, something happened when his mother, uh, in, in his mother conceiving him, some, a, a, the spiritual being from another planet came, and pure spiritual being, and somehow caused him to be born in his mother's womb, this person from a planet, we'll call it Elyon, this other planet. So that's one thing, is he has this origin that's really different. The other thing that's different is that there's, there's, they find in time through the storyline that there, there's something different about him. His genetics are just slightly altered in some way. He has a different gene. And that gene, they find out, is, is actually connected to all the, the, all the human sickness and human evil. So he, in a sense, doesn't have the gene, the corrupted gene, actually, that every other human has. He, he's got a, a clean gene in that area. And so that's connected to his behavior. So there's more to the storyline, though. It doesn't just end there because this all gets woven together. Normal man. Um, so they, they find out that actually they can, they can manufacture from that gene, uh, if he were to donate himself, a vaccine to give to humanity that everyone can take that will actually transform you to make you like normal man. And so this, you know, it un- the story unwinds and everything, and normal man's faced with this decision. Will he give, donate his body to change mankind and and yes he decides he will Uh, he gives his body he actually has to die and and give up his genetic material so that this vaccine can be spread about to change humanity and so he does he dies and you're sad in the in the movie but you're like glad this is you know he's really he's given himself he's going to change humanity and then three days later something miraculous happens with normal man he comes back to life because there's something in the whole storyline and in his origins and destiny and who he is that that when he dies, he actually gets reborn, and he now does have superpowers. He comes back as, as a, a, a superhuman being with great powers. He can fly, he can pass through walls, he can like, radiate light, it blinds everybody. He's super intelligent, super strong, and of course still perfect in every way. And he transforms into future man. And, and they find out actually that all those who get the vaccine Though they die, they will be transformed to new life just like future man. You like that story? You think normal man will sell? And you probably guess what I'm talking about at this point, right? Who's normal man? Jesus. Always a good answer, right? Uh, Jesus is normal man. And I, I tell that story, it, it sounds a little bit extravagant maybe and even silly maybe, but, but the point is, in, in all good stories, right, they help us kind of see something with fresh eyes. And I think we, we look at the story of Jesus and we, we're so used to it, we just don't see what's extraordinary about it. We don't see what the key things in it are because we're just, we're just so used to it. So a good story helps us to see with fresh eyes. I hope this story has helped you see with fresh eyes who Jesus is. And what we've been learning in this series is that He's normal. He's a normal human being. He's normal in His humanity and yet there are some extraordinary things about Him. But it is through his perfectly normal life 
that he fulfills his mission. And today, uh, the fourth part in this series, I want to talk about how he fulfills his mission to lead us into new humanity. So, in the story, Future Man. That he leads us into a new humanity uh, as a man. As a normal man. A, a normal man who fulfilled all righteousness and also uh, is God and man together. So he is not quite like us in every way, but he is fully human. And how he leads us into uh, a new humanity and a new future. That's what I want to talk about. Uh, I want to connect Jesus as a man with the resurrection. Now there's lots of places we could go but probably the best place is 1 Corinthians 15. So if you haven't turned there, turn there. But let's pray and ask God to teach us from His Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for these truths. And I ask You for power, Lord, to grasp what these truths mean. I ask You to give us the ability, Lord, having heard these things perhaps over and over again, perhaps for some of us it's a brand new thing, but for many of us, we've heard it over and over again. Would you grant us power not to treat it as just the same old story that we're so familiar with, but to see how extraordinary this story is and how important this story is for us, how true it is, how transforming it is. Change us by Your Word, Lord, this morning. Give us power, Spirit of God. Dwell here amongst us. Help us to understand and be changed. Help me, Lord, to serve You and serve Your people here in the proclamation, the teaching of Your Word. Change us and be glorified in it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We're picking up in the middle of a, of a discussion Paul has. A, a, basically, he's putting forward truth with the, uh, to deal with the Corinthians who had a mistaken notion about the resurrection. They some of them at least, were denying that there was a bodily resurrection for believers, uh, even for Jesus. They were misunderstanding this very important truth. And so uh, this, most of this chapter of 15 is about Paul's answer to them. But we pick up in verse 20 with some key truths for our subject matter this morning. So it says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote, God has put all things in subjection under his feet, unquote. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's dig into this passage and learn how Jesus leads us into a new humanity. Jesus the man leads us into a new humanity. So first, I just want to look at verse 20. And there's a parallel uh, section in verse 23. And this whole idea that Jesus is the first of many resurrected humans. The problem with the Corinthians is that they were 
entertaining this ridiculous notion that, that the resurrection was, was something that hadn't happened and wasn't even important. Uh, and Paul wants them to understand, guys, this has everything to do with God's plan. That if there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then His work of atonement, paying for sins, completing the payment for our sins, standing in our place, we, we know from Scripture, uh, the wages of sin is death, the, the penalty for sin, the penalty for rebellion against God is separation from God, spiritual death. There's nothing worse. Physical death uh, is only really part of that. The worst part is spiritual death, to be cut off from God. The wages of sin is death, to be cut off from God. So Christ in, in God the Son, uh, in God's mercy and love for us, sent His Son. He came, He died on the cross, paid for our sins, but the payment was complete on the cross, and then the resurrection was the, the, the guarantee of the fullness of that payment and the completion of the work of, of Victory over sin and death. And so the Corinthians were saying, well, it doesn't matter. And Paul was saying, yes, it does. matter of fact, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're, you're still in your sins. The, the victory is not complete. He, his victory was over sin and death, so he had to come back to life. He had to conquer sin and death. And, and not only is it wrong for those reasons, but it's wrong because it's not understanding God's whole plan from beginning to end. See, God made creation God is spiritual. He's not physical, but He made creation as a physical reality and has a spiritual reality as well to, to express His glory. God is interested in expressing His glory through both the physical and the spiritual together. And so creation is a union of the physical and the spiritual. And man is the apex of creation. We are a spiritual and physical being. So to deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is to deny our, our humanity, our physicality, uh, and that's all part of God's plan from the beginning. So, so He's not going to kind of uh, work the plan in a way that we you know, we'd never have new bodies, that we just go to heaven and we float around as spirits on clouds. That's not biblical. And so the, the truth of the resurrection is integral to the whole storyline. Original creation. Mankind's over-creation. Mankind falls. And, and so in rescuing mankind in creation, they, He must make a new humanity. A new Sinless humanity, a new future man, as I said in the story. So the Corinthians are, are terribly mistaken here. That there, if this were true, if there were no resurrection, then you're not, your sins are not completed, the victory is not complete, and your future, there's no future. And so he's addressing this, and in the process, he says the things that we've read. And he speaks of this idea of first fruits. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen. Asleep. That's a, a word that's used throughout Scripture. Uh, there's a number of places it's used. Actually, Deuteronomy, uh, early on, is one of the first mentions of it. And it says this, uh, And behold, now I, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground. So this is the believer coming to the Lord. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground. That's the word first fruit. Which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you in your house. You and the Levites and the sojourners who... Who is the sojourner who is among you. So this idea for the people of God in the Old Testament is as God blesses you in your agricultural pursuits, take the first fruits and bring them as an offering to God to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've blessed me and, and we have crops. So take the first fruits, the beginning, the initial part of the harvest. It's used elsewhere uh, in a metaphorical way in Romans 16.5. Paul is speaking of his friend uh, Eponidas, Eponidas, and he says in 16.5, Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Ep Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. 
Uh, the ESV says first convert, but the word actually is first fruits. Um, and, and so Paul is saying, greet this guy who is the first convert in Asia. Now, if you go back and read the storyline, Paul probably had tens of thousands of converts in Asia, uh, particularly in Ephesus. Uh, so this was the first one who came to Christ. So this was the first of many. And he remembers his friend. Um, and, and so he says, greet him. And so that's the use of this word, first fruit. So it's the first of many. That's the idea. The first of many. Um, that may seem kind of obvious, uh, but it has really important implications for us. And I'll get to those shortly. Um, so I think we understand the idea of first fruits, right? The idea of the first of the harvest. Now, uh, I don't know, are there any farmers among us? There are farms still in Haverhill in the area. I don't know if there's anyone who's a farmer. Um, and, but most of us are kind of out of touch with farming. But the closest you might get to this whole idea of agriculture is your, a garden. So anyone here have a garden that you do year by year? Good. Uh, good. Uh, we have one. I should say Peg has one. My wife has one. Uh, that she takes care of, and we'll grow vegetables in the garden. Um, and, uh, and it's always really cool when you get the first fruits, right? If you, I can remember, uh, do we still do strawberries? We've done strawberries in the past, and the very first of the strawberries you get, they tend to be little tiny red strawberries, and it, it's really cool to pick them and eat them, even though it's, like, it's hardly anything, right? It's, it's a promise of what's, what's to come. So wow, these are the first strawberries we got, and you eat them as if it's a, a rich feast of strawberries. Now, those are the first fruits. So it's a, it's a picture of what's coming. There's more strawberries coming. Uh, and so that's the idea here uh, that, that Jesus is the first fruit in the resurrection. So getting the understanding of first fruit helps us understanding, understand what the Lord wants us to understand in this passage. That Jesus is not an aberration. Jesus is not a superhero distant from us. Jesus is that first fruit. The, the beginning of the harvest. He's the first of many, many more. Probably billions, right? We trust billions and billions of believers who will also experience the resurrection. So we're to understand Jesus' resurrection as a prototype, as the first fruits, as the, the first of billions for us. That's how we should understand it in Scripture. Not as something unique to Jesus, but something for each and every one of us. Uh, I have a picture of a house. If you could put that up, Ethan. You guys see that house? Does anyone recognize that house? It looks kind of like a normal house. I mean, it's kind of a nice house, right? It's a little bit big. It looks like a house in, maybe in Haverhill, in the, maybe the mansion section, right? I mean, it, it's a little bit big, but it's not huge. a pretty normal house. Um, there's nothing too extraordinary about it except for one thing. It's in Appleton, Wisconsin, called the Hearthstone House. It's the very first house in America that got electricity, September 30th, 1882. The very first house. Now back in its day, when that happened, uh, as people saw that, do you think people thought, well, that's, you know, that's exceptional, that's never going to happen, you know, electricity in a house, that's ridiculous. Or do you think maybe people heard about it a normal person getting electricity in their house and thought, I can't wait for my house to get electricity. Within 50 years, the majority of houses in the United States had electricity. Uh, and that was the first, though, the first of many. And the attitude, again, I, I think would have been, I can't wait. And that should be the same attitude we have as we look at Jesus, the man, just like us, resurrected 
to eternal life. We can't wait to get ours. He's the first of many. He's the first of, of many resurrections. And so, let me ask you if that is your attitude. If that is how you live. If you think that way about Jesus. If you think that way about the resurrection. Do you live expecting to receive the same sort of future glorious body that Jesus had? In Christ, you have died to sin and you are alive forevermore in Him. And you have a future and you have a resurrection body uh, awaiting you. And that truth is, is a key truth for the Christian life. We need to live knowing that the resurrection is for us. That Jesus the man is the first of many. That we will receive resurrected bodies. There's power in this understanding. There's hope that comes. There's wisdom that comes. It's a guaranteed expectation for all of us. And that it's the sort of truth that gets us through sufferings and struggles that come in these current bodies. The older I get, the more I need that. Because this body's falling apart. But it's not just that this body's falling apart. This world is falling apart. This is not the final model. This is not our final destination. There's something better and it's guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. And, and I would submit that you're not going to be able to deal with personal suffering and the sorrows of this life if you don't anchor yourself in the promise of the resurrection. And you anchor yourself in the promise of the resurrection by looking at your brother Jesus who's already gone before you and lives now in a resurrected body as a guarantee, as the first fruits for you. And you can stand on, on that promise of Christ and His resurrection. Guys, as, as good as it gets here, it's not good enough to get you through you will be let down. Even those who have experienced healing, we as a church believe that God heals people. We've seen Him heal. Um, but, but you can't just live on that. You can't just live expecting, you know, I, I, if you're dealing with a sickness, say, I'm looking forward to a healing. Because you might get healed. We're going to ask God for that. And He does heal. But eventually, you're going to get sick and die. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. But his body died later. And then he's with the Lord now and he'll receive a resurrected body. We have people we know who, who have been healed only to get sick later and die. And in Jesus, that's not a bad thing because now they are with Him in His presence and they're awaiting their new bodies. It's not a bad thing. Death gets transformed by the power of Christ and His death and resurrection. But guys, we've got to anchor ourselves in this guaranteed new life, this new body that, that for each of us is awaiting us and promised by Jesus. It will give you strength it will give you strength to endure the trials of this life. It will give you strength to say no to the temptations of the twisted pleasures of this life. Trying to find fulfillment in this broken world somehow. The twisted pleasures of the world and the flesh and the devil will be only be able to be refused if you, if you stand on the promise of the, the perfect unstained pleasure awaiting you in the new creation and in your new bodies. So get in touch with this guarantee, the wisdom and the hope of your resurrection because Jesus is the first of many. Jesus is the man who's the first of many. He's also the man who brings resurrection life. Verses 20 and 21. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you hear in these verses the emphasis on the humanity of Christ? There's a connection here. 
It's not saying, for by a man came death, by a superhuman came life. No, by a man came life. Now this is in line with God's plans and there's a lot of truth behind it, but God's design has always been to put mankind in charge of His creation. His plan in creating everything was to express His glory by, by creating all these, all these realms and the sky, the sea, the land, filling them with order and filling them with life and glory, and then setting mankind over all these things to rule, to fill all these realms and to rule over them, to have dominion in God's name and to, to reflect His image because mankind has been made in His image. So mankind was put over all these things to fill all of creation with the image of God, the reflection of God, to represent God in, in all of creation. That's the plan from the very beginning. And he's never deviated from that design. Romans, uh, sorry, Psalm 8 speaks of this. It, it, it says, I'll just read a few of the verses. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So Psalm 8 is a psalm about this plan, about this design, and that's been consistent throughout time. He has called us to, to have dominion over all things. Now, the problem is, early on, the first man and woman were called to do that, and they failed to believe God and obey Him. And, and they determined to do it on their own, not depending on God, not living under Him. Uh, and they messed things up. And they brought corruption into creation. So through man, and through their, their sin, came death and corruption to all creation. Why? Because mankind is over all creation. God designed that mankind would preside over all creation. So if you can corrupt mankind, you, you can affect all creation. And that's what the, what the devil did. We don't know all that go, went on in the heavenlies and, in, and with Satan and so forth, but certainly if you want to come in and, and, and create an evil kingdom, the way to come is to come and corrupt mankind because if you can corrupt and control mankind, then you can control his realm. And that's presently what we see. The enemy only has sway over creation because he has corrupted mankind. And he leverages man's authority to bring evil. That's basically how he works. So it was through a man that death came. That's God's design. That, that man would be in charge. And so death came through that man because of evil, because of the evil one. And God has honored that plan. So, sadly, right, the reason that we have the trouble that we do is because that has had its ramifications throughout time. We have been set in place and, and yet we've failed. And we've allowed evil to come in. And so in His plan, so, so by man came death, He wasn't going to deviate from the authority He gave man and the role He gave man. So what He did was He Himself became man as Jesus. God became a man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The amazing miracle. The eternal, infinite, glorious One whose spirit, and not physical, took on flesh. Became a, a normal human being. Lived a normal life in many ways. Yet fulfilled all righteousness. Who, who obeyed. Who always believed. And obeyed. You guys remember in Genesis, there are two trees in the garden, right? There are two trees. There's one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat of that tree. 
believe me and obey me and walk in fellowship with me. That was really the converse of not eating from the tree. And yet Adam and Eve disobeyed. They ate from the tree. They were tempted. They fell into sin. They broke their relationship with God. There was spiritual death. And we all inherit that spiritual death. We are born dead spiritually. And that leads to all the corruption in our own lives and in creation. Jesus came. And when He was tempted, He didn't say, I'm going to do it on my own. But the devil kept on tempting Him. Do this on your own. You're hungry. Make the bread into... Make the stones into bread. They're right here. You can... You can eat. Why be hungry? I took him up to the temple. Uh, said, throw yourself down and prove yourself. You can do that. Do it on your own. Do it your way. Took him to a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Said, hey, if you bow down on me, I'll give these to you. Those are all things that Jesus was, was needing to deal with. He needed to eat. He wanted to, he wanted to show that He was the Messiah. And He wanted to rule over all nations for good. They were all part of what He was called to do, but they were on the devil's terms and on if Jesus had done it on His own terms, not in line with what the Father had planned. So do you see how Jesus' success and that temptation was the opposite of what Adam and Eve did? They said, we're going to do it on our own. We're going to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to figure out things on our own. Do it separately. That broke their relationship with God. They failed and brought misery. Christ came and He was faithful. He kept on saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. I'm interested in what God says and in doing it His way depending on Him and doing it His way. And He submitted and He was faithful in that temptation. And every temptation that He faced, He was faithful to the end. And we know the the rest of the story that He was faithful perfectly in His life to the end, to the point of going to the cross. Because part of God's plan was as the perfectly normal man and as the God-man, He would bear the holy justice of God in Himself on the tree as He bore our sins and pay for our sins, pay for our failures, pay for the evil that we had done, pay for our disobedience so there could be forgiveness so that God's justice would be satisfied in His death. He paid it completely. He died completely on that cross. He died the death that we deserve completely. He, he vanquished death. He paid it completely and He rose again from the dead for He had been victorious in His full payment and in His holy obedience. So He overcame sin and death and He rose again to eternal life. There were two trees in the garden. One was the tree that they were forbidden from eating. The other was the tree of life. Jesus has earned the right to eat of the tree of life and He Himself is that tree of life. So that in Him, this man who was faithful, now can eat of that tree. And as we trust in Christ, we as well have that eternal life in Christ. This is what Jesus has done in His life and in His resurrection. So His resurrection is our resurrection by faith. So by a man came death. By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, if if we are descendants of Adam, we die with Him. There's death that's inherited by all of us. So also in Christ, if you should be in Christ, which is simply done through trusting Christ, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. His victory is your victory. His life is your life. That's what Paul's getting at here. Do you see the connection between his humanity as the perfectly normal human? Being faithful, fulfilling all things, being the the alternative to Adam who comes and through faith in Him now we have forgiveness and life. We have victory in Jesus. Jesus 
brings, Jesus the man brings resurrection life. You know what, guys? Uh, life is basically trusting in Jesus or living like Adam and his descendants. That's what life is for the believer, really, for all of humanity. We either live as Adam in our sins and in our old way, or we put our faith in Christ. We put our faith in Christ to pay for our sins. We put our faith in Christ to give us life and to lead us in resurrection life. That's, that's what the Christian life could be boiled down to, really all of life, because all of humanity falls under these two men. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And we are to choose, really, where we're going to put our faith. Are we going to put our faith in ourselves? Are we going to put our faith in fallen humanity? Are we going to put our faith faith in the ways of the world, in all this brokenness that comes from Adam? Are we going to put our faith there? Are we going to put our faith in the pleasures of sin, the ways of the world, the, the false promises of the devil? Are we going to put our faith there? Are we going to put our faith in just this life, this passing life? Are we going to put our faith in Jesus, the perfect Adam, the one who obeyed, the one who died for us, who rose again, who's reigning right now? We're going to talk about that shortly. Who's with us, who gives us life, who will strengthen us to resist the ways of the world, who will give us new life to, to turn away from those things and learn to be like Him step by step. Where do you put your trust? When you are facing adversity, where do you focus? On this life? Or on Jesus? On, on this world? Or on Jesus and life in Him? When you're in conflict, to whom do you look? When you're lonely, where do you find comfort? Where's your hope? When you're depressed, to whom do you cling? When you're looking for true happiness, whom do you seek? When doing well, whom do you thank? When planning your future, for whom do you strive? Is it Adam or Christ? Is it fallen humanity? Or is it future, glorious humanity? Is it death or life? Brother and sister in Christ, you are called to live a very different life. A life full of hope in this eternal life we have in Christ. Put your hope there. Trust in Him and follow Him, the One who gives us resurrection life. If you've not yet trusted Him, then trust Him. Put your hope in Him. Turn from all these alternatives. All these things are false promises. They're not true. There's no solid ground there. Turn from those things and trust this One who died and rose again. Finally, Jesus is the man who rules all creation. Who leads us really in, in ruling all creation. The latter verses 24-28 to speak of this. I'm going to cover these fairly briefly. Uh, and, and this is something we could spend a lot of time talking about. But, but as I said in Psalm 8, and the whole plan of God was to subject all things to mankind. And so this is quoted here in this verse. Psalm 8 actually is quoted right here in, in uh, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now it's speaking about Jesus here. And it's using Psalm 8. And so the connection is that God is fulfilling His intention, this plan that all things would be in subjection to mankind through Christ. And as we follow Christ, we are part of that. We are part of His reign. But He's fulfilling the original plan to put all things under His feet through Christ. Now, we talked, I think it was last week, Hebrews 2 actually mentions that part of the plan is to lower mankind a little lower than the angels, and then exalt Him. And that's what happened with Jesus, right? He was lowered, uh, lowered to the point of death on the cross, death for our sins, so that the Father would exalt Him and put all things in subjection under His feet. So He fulfilled this Psalm 8 plan, this Genesis 1 and 2 plan, through Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation. 
And so now the plan is through this man, Jesus, who is the perfect man, the faithful man, to put all things under His feet. So Jesus is reigning right now as a resurrected man. And God is in the process of putting everything under His feet. That is the place and time in history we live in right now. He's already been raised. He's fulfilling Psalm 8. He's fulfilling the original plan to put all things in subjection under His feet. It says He must reign until all things are under His feet. He's reigning right now. He's ruling right now. And the plan is for Him to continue to rule until all things are under His feet. And we live with Him in that reign now, and we will live with Him in that reign in the future. Now all things are not yet under His feet. There's progression here. And so He says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. You know when He says that? You might read it, and I've read it this way too, well, of course you're God. All authority is given to you. But no, that's not how He's meaning it here. Yes, as God, He does reign over all. But God has a plan that through mankind, He would rule over creation. So when He says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me, He means as a man. As the God-man. I have authority now. All those intentions for, for God to rule through mankind over all things are now fulfilled in Me and being fulfilled in Me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. I stand now as the man to rule. So go therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is not just a verse that's supposed to be an assurance for God's people as they go and make disciples. Certainly it serves that way, right? We're to go out and we're to, to love people and speak the truth and make disciples in every part of the world. Among every conceivable different ethnic group. So throughout the world, you're to make disciples and that's, that's happening now. It isn't just there though to comfort us. Like, hey, guys, it's going to be hard sometimes. Just remember, I'm in charge. That's not the thrust here solely. What he's saying is, guys, I'm in authority now and I'm extending my reign through you. As you make disciples of all nations, I'm extending my reign among all different peoples. I'm extending my reign among all these diverse ethnic groups. The plan from Scripture is that every different ethnic group would hear the Gospel and be impacted by the Gospel in some significant way. We don't know to what extent that the Lord intends, but at least to some extent, every single ethnic group is to be impacted by the Gospel. Perhaps the, that He'll wait until every single ethnic group has majority Christians who are sincerely following the Lord, sacrificing and giving their lives for Him and loving each other in a way that's glorious and beautiful. Um, Perhaps it's just that the Gospel gets to every single ethnic group. Some would understand it that way. I would say we don't know for sure in Scripture, but what we do know is that He's reigning now and He wants to put all enemies under His feet. And He does that by bringing the Gospel to all people groups throughout the world. So that they would come to know Christ and in Christ find forgiveness and resurrection life. He wants future men, these glorious people, to be of all types from the whole world together. He's going to create a new, a new world. It will be recreated. And people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, every conceivable ethnic group will be there and be represented. And I, will, I would say it's going to be a countless number. That's what he's after. He's reigning now as a man. And he's, going to put all, he's putting all enemies under his feet. And those that don't bow now will bow later. Because he will come back. He will return. And at that point, he will finalize his reign. And all those who have not put their hope 
in Christ, put their faith in Christ now in this time of mercy and salvation, will do so in judgment. He will come and it will be the final time. There will be no chance to turn and trust Him at that point. There's an urgency to this truth to trust Him because you don't know what tomorrow holds. Tomorrow might be the day He comes back. And it will be too late if you haven't trusted Him. And you will bow your knee because you will see who He is in all His glory and goodness and you will regret that you didn't trust Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every enemy will come under His feet. It will be a glorious reign, but only those who have trusted Him will get to enjoy it. Every, every knee will bow. Everything will come under His feet. Then finally, the last enemy to be dealt with will be death. No more death. No more dying. Just life eternal in new bodies as new creations with Christ reigning over all and us reigning with Him and enjoying His creation as originally intended. All things being fulfilled. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be unimaginable in His glory and goodness and peace and prosperity in a new creation with new resurrected body. Jesus is the first fruit of many. There'll be an unending universe of God-saturated wonder. We already see His glory now. Can you imagine without sin, without corruption, without death, without sorrow, without limitations, with bodies that never sick get sick, that, that aren't dependent in the same way we are now, living forever? C.S. Lewis in his book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, if the band could come up as we close, uh, in his book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last book, uh, near the end of that book, he says this, uh, this, this, this series follows uh, the storyline of the Bible to, to some degree. And speaking of this final chapter, this final point where Christ comes back and reigns over all, all enemies are under His feet, brings this new creation, he says, he says this, and we can have this to project, and for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's an apt description of what we have in Christ, the, the man, Jesus the man, who leads us in resurrection. So as we close and get ready to transition to communion, let me ask you, are you living your life in light of these truths? Are you living your life in light of what the man Jesus has done and the resurrected life that He has brought for us? Are you living in this hope? Are you living in faith for the future? Are you living in light of this? Is your world and all your troubles now and all your blessings now put in perspective in light of the resurrected life awaiting you? How can you better live this way? Is there somewhere in your life, in your struggles, or maybe your life is good right now, even how you think about it, where you're really not living in reference to Jesus risen from the dead for you and the life that He has for you? How can you follow Jesus as He leads you into this new humanity? Sorry. Let's just take a moment to pray about that. Ask the Lord to show us, is there somewhere in my life where I'm not really living in the hope of what I have, that I can learn to do that? Maybe write that down on a piece of paper, and then we'll take time to transition to communion. So Lord, help us 
now to consider how to live in light of Your truth. Build us up. Glorify Your name, we pray. Let's take a moment to pray.